I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. It was 100 days ago New York City confirmed its first case of novel coronavirus. More than 200,000 illnesses and 22,000 deaths later, the battered city began a delicate, phased reopening that brings hundreds of thousands of people back to work in construction, manufacturing, and retail. It is the day that we start to liberate ourselves from this disease the day we move forward. Mayor Bill de Blasio celebrated the moment from the Brooklyn Navy Yard where manufacturers started making personal protective equipment as hospitals ran short. Dr. Oxiris Barbeau is the New York City Health Commissioner. Commissioner, is this the day of celebration or are you really nervous? <laughs> you know, I have to be honest, I am nervous. I want, me, I want to make sure that New Yorkers don't see this as a signal that, you know, we're going back to the way it was before the year 2020. For the foreseeable future, we are going to be in a place where we are going to need to continue wearing our face coverings, our hand hygiene, you know, telecommuting to the extent we can, um, but certainly not business as usual. So what should our collective posture be? We are still in a period where I would say We have moderate transmission, which means that on a daily basis, there are several hundred New Yorkers that are still testing positive for COVID-19. And even though, you know, we are now starting to lift some of the social distancing restrictions, we by all means are not telling New Yorkers to go back to regular life. I still need New Yorkers to use their face coverings when they go outdoors, be vigilant and diligent about good hand hygiene, stay home if they're not feeling well, and to get tested if they're not feeling well. We have lots of testing capacity. There's been a bit of discussion about whether New York could actually sustain a second wave because the first one was so overwhelming. Is that your assessment as well? We anticipate ongoing new cases being diagnosed, right? This is not a situation where we're going to go to zero cases. And the degree to which ongoing transmission takes hold is going to depend on all of us, right? How good are we collectively at continuing to wear our face covering, continuing the hand hygiene, and certainly staying home if we're not feeling well? You've had the benefit of seeing a number of other cities and states reopen. Have you learned anything from those reopenings that can apply to New York City? We are looking very closely at a number of different cities. And I think what's certainly clear is that there's no there's no set playbook. And one of the most important things for us is to make sure that all of our prevention messages are reaching all of our communities and that we are continuing to be vigilant about what the experience is through the hospitals, right? On a daily basis, we pay attention to how many people are coming to the emergency department with symptoms that are potentially consistent with COVID-19, how many people are getting admitted, You know, what is the testing volume? How many people are testing positive? All of these different data points, we look at very closely every single day to make sure that we are not seeing 
you know, the numbers trend in the wrong direction. It's normal for there to be up and down fluctuations on a day-to-day basis, so we look at the trends. And right now, the trends are all looking good, and that's why it's important for us to just adhere to those preventive measures. New York City Health Commissioner Dr. Axiris Barbeau, our thanks to you. It now appears coronavirus hit China months before the nation ever reported it to the World Health Organization. A team at Harvard Medical School, led by ABC News contributor Dr. John Brownstein, analyzed commercial satellite imagery and observed a dramatic increase in traffic outside major hospitals in Wuhan beginning late summer and early fall. That coincided with a jump in Internet search traffic for symptoms that are now associated with coronavirus. Dr. Brownstein joins us now. Tell us more. Well, we can't know for sure what was happening um, in sort of late summer, early fall in the hospitals around Wuhan, but we did see um, this, you know, increase in volume as well as this increase in search on the on the internet uh, search engine Baidu. Sort of led us to believe something was going on. You know, hospitals get busy because people are sick and something's happening in the population, and then we see people searching for symptoms. That sort of combination of evidence tells us that there was something that was creating this social disruption that could potentially be uh, early signs of coronavirus. As the hospital traffic was increasing, the internet searches were for what? Symptoms that were later connected to COVID-19? Yeah, so we saw internet searches increase for cough and for diarrhea. So cough, we know, is a symptom of coronavirus, also a symptom of flu. But diarrhea is not. Diarrhea has this very specific feature for COVID, and we didn't see any increases in diarrhea searches for you know the years that we looked back uh, in Hubei province in searches. It only started emerging late uh, summer, early fall. That provided some good sort of evidence that potentially this was you know specifically coronavirus infection. Late fall, we're talking about October, right? Right. So. Internet data actually started coming up um, in in sort of late summer, you know, July, August, September. The hospital uh, traffic data started increasing really as of October, which is not surprising. You see sort of symptoms brewing in a, in a community and then eventually people come to the hospital. What does this tell you about the nature of the virus and perhaps whether China should have done something sooner? Recent genomic data shows that this virus was probably already circulating, that the Wuhan market was maybe just an innocent bystander. And, you know, this might have been spreading for many months already, potentially out of other parts of China, which, you know, according to some of our colleagues that look at sort of a virus spreading in um, in animal populations, our surveillance systems globally are not great to pick up new emerging diseases, especially diseases that look like many other things, right? Cough, diarrhea, these things are common symptoms for many outcomes. So our surveillance systems are not necessarily great for picking up these kind of signals. And it's not surprising that uh, we, that it could be missed, you know, here in the U.S. as well. So I think, you know, whether this was on purpose or not, I mean, I think we, we, we can't say. Um, and this is, you know, data that helps point us to, to the, the origins and hopefully, you know, more work will happen to sort of understand sort of how this evolved and, and came to be. Traffic around a hospital, internet searches, this is circumstantial data, but, but it does make a compelling case. I mean, there's, there's nothing to really refute it to say the virus wasn't circulating by October. Right. We, you know, again, this is about trying to sort of create, um, piece together information streams that we have available to us to understand what was happening. We try not to explain away um, with other external factors, natural disasters and mass gatherings. We couldn't 
So yes, I mean, it's circumstantial. It points to, you know, this evolution of this virus over time. Uh, and it also points to the fact that globally, we need to be strengthening our public health surveillance efforts. Dr. John Brownstein with us from Boston. One more note about New York reopening 100 days after coronavirus was first detected in the city. Now that you said 100 days, it, it actually, because it doesn't see, I feel like this whole process, this whole journey has been a blur. Amaris Grillon founded Bronx Native, an apparel shop in the South Bronx. We are happy to say that we are ready to open and that we face the Bronx Native shop in the midst of everything, COVID-19, the current uh, uh, climate of, of our societal issues that, that we're having right now. The store come through the unrest of the last you know week or so, okay? Yes, yes. So, uh, you know, luckily we didn't uh, have any looting. We didn't have anyone uh, tampering and, and breaking into our shop, but it was a very stressful it was one of the most stressful, uh, out of all the stressful things that's been coming back to back, this was one of the most for me in particular. What about employees? Are you able to bring everybody back? Since this is the beginning of phase one, I'm actually going to be, me personally, I'm going to be the main one at the shop, right? Because, you know, COVID is still out there. We want to take the, the we don't want to put anyone in harm. Um, but hopefully we, hopefully by phase two or phase three, we, we are ready to be bringing in our employees back, which is uh, two of them uh, that work in the shop. Well, man, good luck. We wish you well. You. Yes, yes. Appreciate that heavily. And, and, and we are here. We are ready. We made it through. And we're going to continue to keep working and making it happen for the Bronx, our people in New York City. Amaris Grion at Bronx Native. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thank you, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashen. And Dr. Jen, we've been watching all of these large demonstrations sweep across our country. And of course, health officials are concerned of a possible uptick in COVID-19 cases because of that. Most people were wearing masks, but I certainly saw quite a few who were not. There are still a lot of confusion among people about masks. And you wanted to start talking about the N95 respirators. Yeah, what really got my attention, Amy, in watching all the footage from the last week or more is that there seems to be a wide spectrum of some people wearing them, some people not, different types of masks. And then I saw, and this was concerning, people wearing masks and getting inches away from people suggesting that they think a mask is a license to forget the social distancing precautions, which it is not. So again, the deep dive, if you started looking at N95s, also KN95s, these are specific types of masks that are called respirators. They are in short supply for healthcare workers. They're part of the PPE. Their name comes because they filter out at least 95% of a certain size of airborne particles. They have to be fit tested. These are not one size fits all. The one that fits my face might not be the one that fits your face. Ideally, it forms an airtight seal around someone's face. And the important thing with these types of masks, they offer protection for the person wearing the masks, mm. which is why we wear them in hospital or medical healthcare settings. Right. And because they are supposed to stay with just the people who need them the most, the frontline healthcare right. workers, what about surgical masks? Surgical masks, I kind of put out as an intermediary category. They're still part of PPE, to be clear, but these are the routine blue, they come in other colors, um, that are not fit tested, so they do leave gaps around someone's, um, the edges of someone's nose and mouth. They do do help to block the escape of particles during breathing, talking, yelling, coughing. That's the point. And traditionally, for some historical perspective, 
we put them on sick people in hospital settings to protect others. So again, the purpose there is important. It is unknown at this point how effective they actually are at protecting the person wearing the mask. That is the key thing that I think people are still confused about now. They put on a mask, they feel protected. With this mask, you're really doing it for the protection of those around you. And then what about probably the mask I feel like I see the most now, which is the cloth mask, the homemade mask, even the neck gaiter. Okay, so for some historical perspective on this, when the CDC changed their recommendations and recommend basically cloth face coverings, they did so really without citing any scientific evidence, which is really unprecedented. There's very little data on how effective these are at protecting others or the person wearing them. But again, the theory is it's probably better than nothing. They may have some benefit at blocking these larger viral particles from escaping. And one of the possible theories is to why some Asian countries rapidly contained or slowed the spread of this virus is because so many people wear these kind of face coverings. We do need to learn more. So this is evolving, evolving, evolving. All right, Dr. Chen, thank you very much. Well, summer is here, but not as we may know it. With so many families looking for a chance to get out of the house, it is predicted America's national parks will be the destination of choice to practice safe social distancing while vacationing. And joining us now to tell us what we need to know before we hit the road is Will Shafroth, president and CEO of the National Park Foundation. Now, I have to say this is going to be a a personal segment for me because I, too, am about to hit the road with my family in the next couple of weeks. And we will be hitting those amazing national parks that our country has to offer. So how prepared is the national park system to take on uh, a big group of people? And how are you trying to keep everyone safe? Thanks for having me on, Amy. Yeah, it's a it's going to be a big sure. I think a lot of folks are or who may have thought about going overseas uh, or out of the country for their travel or getting in an airplane are, are, are looking at the possibility of going on the road trip, you know, like the old uh, Willie Nelson song, On the Road Again. And <laughs> we're going to, you know, the National Park Service is, is ready for those visitors. I think they're going to be an, an uptick in, in that kind of visitation. As you acknowledge, people are been feeling cooped up. And so the parks uh, are, are looking ready, but you know, I think we, as we go into these parks, I mean, we all have to think about how we are going to be a, a responsible visitor. And so the Park Service and other public land management agencies, city, state parks, et cetera, have adopted something called Recreate Responsibly hmm. as a way by which we remind people that this is a different time. We need to social distance, as you said in your intro there, but also, you know, be prepared, you know, uh, know before you go. We want to make sure that the parks are even open or if there are any limitations on visitation or time of day. Uh, we got to be prepared to bring a mask and hand sanitizer and uh, make sure we pack out what we pack in so that we min- we minimize the impact that we're all going to have on these parks. Yeah, know before you go. I love that campaign, and certainly it's it's worth it as you're taking your family out there trying to be safe and enjoy yourselves at the same time. Now, pivoting from the park's summer preps to protests over George Floyd's death, national parks we know have long served as backdrops for Americans fighting civil rights. As the president of the National Park Foundation, what is your role in ensuring the safety of protesters in your parks? We don't really have much of a role, Amy, in terms of the operations and management of the parks, but but the role that we've played uh, is to support the National Park Service in telling the story of, so, of, of equal equality in our country. And so we work closely with the Park Service to make sure that the you know, the, the life and birth home of Dr. Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King, where the civil rights movement was really organized back in the 60s, we, we purchased those places. And we're making sure that people in this country understand that moment in time. We're also working on the Harriet Tubman sites where the Underground Railroad 
occurred during the Civil War and many other places that, that really talk about the arc of history in this country and show, frankly, that's not a straight line. That there's some ups and downs along the way. So our role is really trying to support the Park Service in making sure we tell that story. Will Shafroth, we certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful summer. Thank you so much, Amy. You too. Bye-bye. As the nation unites to protest for justice, celebrities are using their social media platforms to post for justice. Entertainers are turning over their Instagram accounts so that changemakers of the Black Lives Matter movement can share their message with millions of followers. Over the weekend, singer Shawn Mendes highlighted a 19-year-old activist who is already changing the world, Zayana Bryant. And she joins us now. And Zayana, thank you so much for being with us. You know Shawn Mendes has over 50 56 million Instagram followers. So when he first reached out to you and said, hey, how about you take over my Instagram account? What did you think? What did you feel? So I was very grateful for the opportunity um, to be able to take over Sean's account for the day. Um, But I knew that it would be an awesome opportunity um, to send a message that there are many ways to organize. Um, I think right now we're all protesting This is actually going to be day 13 of protesting for me and for many other organizers across the country. Um, But it's important for people to remember that there are ways to take anti-racist actions every single day. And so while having Sean's platform, I made it clear to amplify the work of several organizations, including the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and Black Youth Project 100, um, because those those organizations are doing the work of centering youth Um, and also fighting injustices on the front lines in many different ways. Yeah, I know, Zayana, you were getting out so much information to so many people. Was there one message that was most important for you to reach those millions of followers? Um, For me, it was really important to tell people to educate themselves around these issues. I think when you go out into the streets, there's a lot of reactions And so there are also a lot of people protesting for their very first time or organizing for their very first time. And so it's important before going into those spaces that you've done the reading, that you've listened to and consulted other activists who have been doing the work for a very long time, and especially centering the perspectives perspectives of Black women, um, LGBTQ people, and other uh, frontline activists. But aside from just that, I wanted to make it clear that we can all do the actions every single day. So whether it's donating, whether it's reading and educating yourselves or signing up with organizations in your area to do direct actions. All of those pieces are very important in this fight for injustice. You are a powerful voice, a powerful leader indeed at the age of 19. Zayana Bryant, thank you so much for being with us and for all of your good work. Thank you. We have much more ahead right here when we come back. Dr. Jen Ashton addressing your new coronavirus questions and the infectious disease safety suggestions for those tens of thousands of protesters on the front lines. Well, Dr. Jen is back with a look at some of your new questions that have been coming in. Dr. Jen, of course, never a shortage of questions. First one, how safe is it to consume food prepared by friends and neighbors? Okay, well, first of all, very limited hard science on this. It's not like this has been formally evaluated in a lab setting. We do need to remember this is not the major route of transmission of COVID-19 or this novel strain of coronavirus that would be respiratory. Um, Stomach acid does kill a lot of pathogens, but we also have to remember that there are pathogens that are transmitted via food. Foodborne illness is something we see every year. I will qualify, you know, when I share personal insights, I always specify and, and identify it as such. 
I personally am not that worried about getting COVID-19 from food. That's good to know. All right. Next question. How common are false negatives for COVID-19 testing? Oh, what a question. This is so important. So first of all, it really deals with a concept called sensitivity of a test. Sensitivity refers to how often that given test is positive in the setting of someone actually having that disease. Now, when you talk about false positives and false negatives, the two important concepts with this not just COVID-19, but any test, is how accurate is the test? Every test has their own accuracy. It's like their fingerprint. And how common COVID-19 is in your area. That will affect, believe it or not, the false negative rate. In terms of some published studies, some tests out there right now can have a false negative for COVID-19 as high as 15%, maybe even more. We're still collecting those numbers. So bottom line is, in medicine, you rarely hang your hat on one given test result. Wow. It's used in constellation with other things. Wow. Next question. With more non-essential business reopening, what precaution should employees take when returning home from work? Again, we really need to put this into perspective. Yes, COVID-19 is top of mind for everyone right now, but think of, you know, six months ago, it was influenza. Before then, also norovirus, the GI virus. There are a lot of pathogens that people in any kind of work can be exposed to. So I think some common sense precautions, the second you walk into your home apartment, wash your hands and wash them well. Then people will do what they feel comfortable with, generally taking off your work clothes, changing into other clothes. You know, again, you're not going to see official guidance or guidelines on this, but this is common sense and people should do what they feel comfortable with. All right. And then the next question, if you have to commute for work, is it safer to use public transportation or to use a ride-sharing service like Lyft or Uber? Mm. Mm. Tough question, and people may not love this answer, but it depends, right? It depends on when you're going to be commuting, how many people are on the public transportation with you, the cost of ride-sharing. Again, we're talking about time exposed and density and space. So if you're able to do a ride share with all the windows down and only have one person, you're both masked, maybe safer than being on a very crowded bus or subway system. But again, it's six to one, half dozen to the other. Dr. Jen, as always, thank you. And you can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J Ashton. Well, as protests around the world continue on, so does the need for safe protesting amid this pandemic. Here to talk about how to protest as safely as possible is infectious disease physician, Dr. Cassandra Pierre. Dr. Pierre, thanks so much for being with us. And just give us a sense of what your thoughts are first on the significance of these protests and then the risks they present in these times. Absolutely. The protests are profoundly significant. The protesters are calling for an end to systemic racism and There is a lot of justified frustration and disbelief in the ongoing cycles of oppression and violence in marginalized communities, especially black communities. Um, There is this compelling need to be present and to be visible um, as steadfast against police brutality, not just in black communities, but in society as a whole. We've seen images of people across generations, races and ethnicities participating in these protests. And um, it is incredibly important method of advocating for and enacting social change. However, there is no doubt that there is real risk. Um, Standing shoulder to shoulder with others who are shouting, singing, um, talking and emitting other forms of respiratory droplets, even if masked, 
is a unfortunately very efficient way of transmitting COVID-19 from person to person. And it's especially of concern in communities of color um, who have already been ravaged by COVID-19 related infections and deaths, as well as disproportionately being infected, of course, by police brutality. And so medical professionals and public health authorities have been largely supportive of these protests, but also very concerned about what it could mean in a few weeks in terms of rising rates of COVID-19 in communities where there have been protests. So I think it's very important at this point to just get the message out to continue to reiterate that COVID-19 presents a risk for destabilizing communities of color. Can you give us some tips on how to safely protest in the middle of a pandemic? Absolutely. So um, this might sound cliche, but we know that masks are an incredibly important method to protect yourself as well as to protect those standing around you. The best mask to wear if you have access to it would be a surgical mask because of the multiple layers present, which can better filter out particles in the air, uh, including respiratory pathogens like COVID-19. But a cloth mask is just fine if you don't have access to a surgical mask. So please wear masks. The other thing to consider um, that we know about would be good hand hygiene, so carrying sanitizer with you to wash your hands so that you're not carrying any virus that's present in the environment to your eyes or your mouth or other other places on your face that might pose infection. One thing that hasn't been discussed as much has been considering eye protection. So we know that the virus can also, especially in close quarters, come in through the portal of the eyes as well. And in the hospital setting, we use face masks or face shields rather But in the community, we haven't promoted this as much because physical distancing has been much more important. And when you have physical distancing, you don't need to worry as much about eye protection. In this setting where people are close together, we do want to let people know that they may consider using eye protection such as ski or swim goggles. And if they don't have access to goggles, sunglasses might be your next best option, especially those that wrap around the sides. Other things to consider would be traveling in a group of people that you know, whether you've quarantined together or just have each other's information, such that if one of you becomes ill, you can alert the others in your group to consider self-quarantining. And by putting yourself in that bubble of people that you may know or may self-quarantine, you may also reduce your risk of infection. And lastly, of course, something that we know very well is physical distancing. We wanna continue to recommend that people remain six feet apart. However, there is research that does suggest social distancing or physically distancing as little as three feet does also significantly reduce the risk of transmission of virus. So physically distancing yourself as much as possible when you're in the center of protest is also very helpful and continues to be so. Thank you so much, Dr. Pierre, for your expertise. We appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. With frontline workers still in short supply of personal protective equipment, many local heroes are rising to the challenge and stepping up to help supplement those life-saving supplies. And joining us now is an incredible nurse who has been working tirelessly to make homemade, filtrated masks. University Health System's chief nurse executive, Tommy Austin. Thank you so much for being with us, Tommy, and thank you for all that you do. You've been a nurse for more than 30 years. So tell me why you started making your own masks and who they were first intended for. So on March the 17th, the Centers for Disease Control uh, put out a statement that healthcare professionals could wear handkerchiefs and scarves. And so we became very alarmed by that. So initially um, the masks were made for uh, 
any healthcare provider in the facility uh, should we run out of N95s. All right. And then how did you just start making these masks? Well, I have a sewing machine. I'm a quilter. And um, I took the I took a, a copy of a mask home uh, and looked at it because w- some of the concerns that staff had told me was that they had hi- hypercapnia, which is carbon dioxide buildup, and they had low oxygenation. And so based on those two things, um, I started to design a mask using interfacing. And um, I cut a pattern out that night and started uh, designing a mask. That is amazing. And I love that you've named your masks TM2020 and they have special embroidery. Tell us about the personal meaning behind them. So my name is Tommy and I'm named after my father and my father passed away last year. And so to honor him, I named the mask the Tommy mask. I love that. How many masks have you made so far? So, so far for the organization, we've made about 5,000 masks. And personally, I've probably sewn about 300 masks. Wow. And do you have a goal? How many more masks you want to make, try to make? Yes, we want to have at least 6,500 masks. Um, Should we have a surge and should we run out of N95s? And my personal goal is to sew 1,000 masks. Wow, I love that. And for people at home, because they can pitch in too, tell us how they can make their own version of your TM2020 masks. So I use a uh, quilting cotton, which is a tightly woven cotton. And I use a uh, face mask material that is specifically made, um, you know, for... um, face mask, and it is called Filthy, F-I-L-T-I, and I take two layers of Filthy and put it in between the two layers of cotton, and I sew it up, and I use a, uh, what do you call, a coffee tie for the nose bridge, and I use elastic for, uh, to hold the mask in place. Tell me, what have your coworkers said in response to getting all of these beautiful and effective masks? Well, some of the feedback that I've gotten Um, from individuals, it varies. So, for example, I had a colleague in Austin who's a dentist who could not find masks to open her practice. So I sent her some masks and she was able to start her practice again. Other staff have told me that they're able to breathe in the mask. I had a individual who's a singer. She's able to sing in the mask. Um, I've just gotten very good feedback from the mask. Well, I'm glad to hear that because you certainly deserve that and so much more. Nurse Tommy Austin, thank you so much for all you're doing. And thank you for giving us your time today to share it with us. Thank you. We turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for her final thoughts. So, Amy, today I really wanted to shine a spotlight on the field of dental medicine and surgery. We haven't heard a lot about that throughout this pandemic. It is incredibly important for our overall health. The mouth is literally the window to a a plethora of health consequences and disease consequences. Um, But our colleagues in dental medicine and surgery are also at incredibly high risk for exposure to COVID-19. They are starting to reopen. According to the American Dental Association, two-thirds of dental practices are reopened open now with a lot more uh, steps in place. They were already at baseline cautious, but the PPE requirements and infection control really um, have been escalated. So my prescription for all of us is 
Do not neglect your oral health and well-being. You should see a dentist for cleanings at least twice a year. I need to listen to this myself, so when we leave, I'm going to call my dentist. Um, but we, we need to recognize the incredible work that they do because um, we haven't heard a lot about them That's during true. this pandemic. It's very important. We definitely yeah. need them for our overall health. For sure. All right. Dr. Jen Ashton, we always appreciate your very important advice to all of us. A father's review of his toddler daughter's restaurant has gone viral. He pointed out her so-so service on social media while still calling for support of black businesses, saying, been waiting on my order to get done for 45 minutes, and I'm the only customer here. She was making good progress at first, then she stopped for 20 minutes to go watch Paw Patrol. He added, overall, the customer service could be better, but the cook is a cutie, so I'll give her another chance. And guess what? He is here to tell us all about it. Chris Kyle joins us now from Detroit. Chris, thank you so much for being with us, and I love that you've got Ava right there on your lap. Your post has been shared all over social media. What made you first write that review of Ava's restaurant in the first place? Um, I just thought it would be something that, um, you know, would be funny, would be cute. Um, and then I just wanted to share a positive message as well. Um, my daughter is always playing in the kitchen. I like to join her um, just to kind of get her imagination going, um, you know, because she watches us in the kitchen regularly. So um, I just thought it would be something that that the world needed during the dark time. She's adorable. She's not even two. But does she have any idea that she's now a viral star? She's 18 months. Um, I think she may have some idea that she's a viral star. Been walking down the street a few times and we had a few cars uh, stop and say, oh my God, you're the people from the internet. Um, so, And then the last time it happened, Ava stopped and started clapping like, yay. Aw, that's adorable. All right, at the end of the post, you reminded everyone to support black businesses. What is your hope? What good do you hope could come out of these posts? Um, absolutely. So I'm an entrepreneur myself. Um, and I think a lot of times in the black community, um, you know, when we are entrepreneurs, we have a shorter tolerance and a shorter patience, um, you know, with customer service. And we don't allow each other the opportunity to mess up and then, you know, and still return and support that business. So, um, you know, I wanted to use the post, you know, not only as a funny and a cute thing, but I wanted to drive that message home, you know, that when a black business messes up, you know, let's still support them the same way we do with all these big corporations and, uh, and franchises. Amazing. Chris, thank you so much for sharing your beautiful daughter with us. And I hope she can make a huge difference in how we all treat each other. Really appreciate it today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amy. And I just got one question. Yes. Is it all lives matter or black lives matter? I think it's I think we all know black lives matter. And that is why all lives will matter. That is why. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Amy. Thank you. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.